Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. And welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, November 11th. I'm Terry Aranga with my guest, Dr. James Partington. Dr. Partington is the Director of Behavior Analysts in Pleasant Hill, California. He is a licensed psychologist and a board-certified behavior analyst and has more than 30 years' experience working with children with developmental disabilities. His expertise is in language-based intervention with children who are experiencing language delays as a result of autism and other related developmental disorders. Dr. Partington is the co-founder of a school that specializes in language-based instruction for children with autism, the STARS School, and has helped several public school systems establish similar classrooms within their own district. He has been a faculty member of several universities, including West Virginia University, University of San Francisco, and St. Mary's College. Dr. Partington is a former president of the Northern California Association for Behavior Analysis and has served as a member of the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. He co-authored with Dr. Mark Sundberg the book, Teaching Language to Children with Autism or Other Developmental Disabilities. He is the author of the Assessment of Language and Learning Skills Revised, the ABLES R, an Assessment Curriculum Guide and Skills Tracking System for Children with Autism or Other Developmental Disabilities. He has also produced an instructional video, Teaching Verbal Behavior, an Introduction to Parents Teaching Language. Dr. Partington, thank you for joining us. Well, Terry, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share some of my knowledge with your listeners today. Well, Dr. Partington, in a therapy setting in general, what is your goal for every child with autism? Well, I have the same goal for a child with autism as I would have for any other child, and that is... You know, we're all here on this earth for a very short period of time. And so I really believe that, you know, it's our job to help each child that comes along in life to have as happy of a life as possible. And for me, that means giving them the opportunities to participate fully in their community, with their families. And that means teaching them as many skills as possible such that they can get the most out of life. Very good. And how long have you been doing this? And have you seen your patient population change in any ways over the years, for example, either in degree of affect or size of caseload? Well, yes. I started working with children 36 years ago in 1972. And over that time period, especially over the last 10, 15 years, I've seen a major change in the number of children who are being diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. Um, as far as some of the degrees of uh, disabilities or factors affecting these children, there has been some change in that. There are, there's um, a lot more individuals now who are getting a diagnosis uh, for the disorder, and I, and I do believe that there are factors which are resulting in uh, actual true diagnose, diagnosis for these children. Uh, but the, the spectrum is actually a little bit wider these days. We've changed how we talk about it, too, as professionals, and we're now, you know, including you know, individuals uh, on a spectrum as opposed to just purely autism, as they used to talk about many years ago. So it has changed quite a bit, yes. In your mind, what constitutes 
intensive intervention, and what is the benefit to the economy if early intensive intervention is used? Well, for me, intervention, intensive intervention. I'll, I want to start with early intensive behavioral intervention because I think what what is important is that with each child, as we get a diagnosis of the child, we need to begin using the methods which have been demonstrated to be effective just as quickly as possible and with as much rigor as possible. Now, what that means can vary considerably depending upon the child and what their issues are, but typically you're looking at somewhere in the area of 30 to 40 hours of structured intervention time with a child uh, by people who are trained, and those people can be either professionals or they can be paraprofessionals or they can even be the parents. Um, But I also like to broaden that perspective and say, you know, I think it's really important that everybody who comes in contact with and interacts with that child knows how to get the most out of that child in terms of getting them to actively participate in activities which are going to help them acquire some new skills. So it can be structured teaching or it can be a little more informal type teaching as children are participating in regular daily activities like eating or dressing or taking a bath and so on. So that's what I think of when I think of in terms of intensive intervention. It's a combination of all those different types of ways of teaching the child. But um, the other second question you had was that about the outcomes, and that was I think when we start looking at the research, it's very clear that not all children respond the same way to therapeutic types of interventions. Some children will start to respond very quickly, take off, and then other children are going to make uh, slower rates of progress. Um, But the outcomes that we find are that if we get these children at a very early age and if we can provide them with intensive interventions such that they start acquiring skills that they had previously had a hard time acquiring, many of these children have the possibility of ending up in a regular education type of programming and going on through regular ed without having to have a lot or any specialized type of services, in which cases they go on into adulthood and can have some productive lives, as people would often call that, maybe have a job and have a typical type of a life, such that there weren't need for extra services. However, we do know that under the best of circumstances, still a fair number of these individuals are still going to require special education services throughout their time that they're in the public school systems, and then also as adults, they're going to need some specialized type of care, residential, uh, maybe day treatment or day programs which involve having supervisory staff that can help them do certain jobs in the community. The effectiveness, though, of the programming results in a savings to our society in dollars, which I think is very important as a result of any intervention we do that's intensive, but also I think probably one of the greatest aspects is that the benefit for the family and the individual himself who has the diagnosis uh, in that they have just a much more enjoyable life, they have more opportunities available to them and more fuller participation in all the family and community events. Yes, very good. And has it been your experience uh, in your practice uh, with your client base to see a complementary role of biomedical intervention or diet and response to verbal behavior therapy? 
Yes, um, I have, actually. It's um, been very interesting because over the last several years, there's been some uh, more interventions that have been biomedically based, which have helped a lot of the types of physical problems that a lot of the children have been having. And clearly, when the child is feeling better, they're going to be in a much better situation for attending to us and learning from our interactions, our, our teaching. So the biomedical has certainly helped, and I think one of the aspects that's been a real joy to me is that there's an acknowledgement also from the biomedical field that there's also the need for the effective teaching. And this is where I've spent my life working on trying to develop effective teaching methods for children that can be used by teachers, speech and language pathologists, as well as parents on an everyday basis. Mm -hmm. You've alluded a couple of times to generalization. Uh, Is it detrimental to the child if everyone's not on the same page therapy-wise? Well, I think we need to have our teaching occur in such a way that a child gains their skills at the maximum rate possible. Now, there's various ways in which we can go about teaching skills, but one of the things we have to be mindful of is the fact that we don't just teach a skill under one set of conditions. What we have to do is make sure that if we teach a child a skill, that we systematically program for the generalized use of that skills in in all areas of the child's life to the fullest extent possible. Mm, Very good. How is the verbal behavior therapy approach differentiated from the applied behavior analysis ABA model? Well, I like to actually think of all of those kind of falling under one big umbrella, which is behavior analysis. And some of the terminology that is used today by the public isn't very much aware of some of the the implications behind some of the terminology. So, for instance, applied behavior analysis to me is the application of learning principles to a wide range of problems that we face in our society, human behavior, things such as um, how you teach medical personnel to make sure that their hands are well cleaned and keep a sterile environment when working with patients, keeping restaurant workers using appropriate sanitary methods and so forth. It's not just about autism. So applied behavior analysis to me is a much bigger field. However, many people think in terms of applied behavior analysis as being one specific type of training, such as the discrete trial method of instruction, which was kind of characterized by the work of Dr. Ivar Lovas back in his article in 1987, where you have children sitting down at tables, working on specific types of tasks. You collect data on a trial-by-trial basis and so on. Well, thank you for making that differentiation between uh, ABA and the subset of it, discrete trial. And we're going to pick up with this when we come back from break here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Dr. James Partington. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on 
the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virostop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymedica.com. If you've tried everything on the market and can't seem to get the radiant results you want from your skincare routine, it's time you stop shopping and start listening. Skin Health Today will help you take charge and start making smart choices for a lifetime of radiant skin and positive self-image. Join host Celeste Hilling and her esteemed panel of experts every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for Skin Health Today on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within, your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. James Partington, and we're talking about verbal behavior. And Dr. Partington, you had just made a distinction uh, between applied behavior analysis in general and discrete trial in specific. Yes, and I think those are some important distinctions to make because the verbal behavior approach to working with children with autism also is from the behavior analysis uh, background. And so what's done in the verbal behavior approach is to use all the methods of good behavior analytic teaching, which have been demonstrated through the research to be effective ways of prompting and shaping new responses and reinforcing new responses. And then on top of that, it overlays B.F. Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior. He wrote a book in 1957 called Verbal Behavior, and in there he laid out a conceptual framework for what we typically refer to as expressive language, our ability to talk about things in our environment and so forth. And in doing so, he laid out for us functionally different behaviors that we can teach to children and make sure that they acquire all the appropriate types of expressive language skills that they need to be able to interact with others in their daily interactions with others in their environment. So is this considered an educational or a behavioral therapy or maybe an adjunct therapy? It kind of sounds like some speeches in there. Well, it could be. It definitely is educational. It definitely has behavioral elements to it, and it also does uh, involve of what has typically been the, the area we call speech and language, communication skills. So, yes, it's really a combination of all those. 
what do you consider to be the intersection between behavior and communication? Well, uh, the way that communication is looked at from a behavior analyst perspective is it's behavior, and that's what Skinner did for us. He said language is behavior, and just like any other behavior, we can study it just like we would any any other uh, response that we're interested in. Okay, and what goes into verbal behavior itself? And here I don't mean the verbal behavior therapy, but the, the um, I'll say, uh, skill of verbal behavior in the child. Well, actually, what it, what it comes down to, Terry, is that there's several different types of what we would call expressive language. For instance, a child needs to be able to ask for things when they want things or ask for information to get access to items that they want or desire. That's, that's one of the areas of expressive language we call demand. In English, we would call it the request. A second type of expressive language is often referred to in English as being expressive labeling of items. In a behavior analytic, verbal behavior approach, we talk about the tact, and that is basically just labeling things that we see or hear or smell, taste or feel. And on top of that, we have a couple of others, one being we call vocal imitation skills, our ability to say back words and phrases, sentences that others say. Uh, so that's what we call vocal imitation in English and verbal behavior terms. We talk about that being the echoic repertoire, echoic skills. And then finally, there's a fourth one, verbal operant, that we refer to as the intraverbal. And that really doesn't have an exact English translation to it. But what it involves is hearing somebody say something else. They say something, and then you say something which doesn't match what they're saying. So it can be a wide variety of types of situations. It can be somebody asks you a question like, what did you have for dinner today? And they'd be able to answer you. So it's one verbal stimulus, we call it, with a different verbal response. They just don't match, unlike the echoic skills where it's an exact replication of what the other person just said. So this is a set of skills that's very, very complex but needs to be taught to children with autism such that they can carry on conversations about a wide range of topics such as things that they'd like to do, things that they've done in the past, who they did them with, where they did them, and so on. So those are some of the major types of expressive language that we look at. Before we get into the technicalities of each of the things that you just mentioned, do you think that the kids in general do better in a homeschooling situation, a segregated school setting, a neurotypical school setting, or some combination of all of these? Well, you know, that really depends upon the child and the situation where the child is uh, living. Because one of the things I've found over the years is that there's no one-size-fits-all for any child. What you really have to do is take a look at each individual child and say, what skills do they need to learn? because every child with autism doesn't have the same uh, set of skills as the next child. So we need to say, what does this child need to learn? Then we have to take a look at who has the skills to be able to teach them those skills, because teaching skills, oftentimes educators, speech and language pathologists, even behavior analysts, oftentimes don't have some of the necessary skills to really be effective in teaching those skills. But once we've identified what the child needs to learn, We've identified somebody who's capable of teaching them those skills. We then have to provide an environment in which will allow for those skills to be acquired just as quickly as possible. So it can vary. Sometimes 
a private school might be much more effective than being in a typical type of general education classroom. However, other times, you've got a child where they've learned a lot of skills, and now they're learning by watching others, they're paying attention to others, and they would learn best in a more inclusive environment where there's appropriate models around them. So it really varies from individual to individual. What I typically find, though, is usually it's a combination of those two. You need some specialized instruction, but then you also need some more general type of learning environment to facilitate the use of those skills under broader circumstances. Right. I was I was always uh, much in favor of having my son around neurotypical children for neurotypical peer modeling, and there was a little boy in his class who took him under his wing, and he would say, come on, Ian, talk, or he would, um, you know, what is it, fire engine. So You're it, right. It's really great to have that uh, reinforcement, you know, in in a segregated classroom setting, I wondered, you know, if my child starts talking, who's going to be there, you know, among his peers to reinforce that? Exactly. That's that's one of the issues, and that's why there's no one answer for for everyone. Because some children, you could have an inclusive environment, and they'd be totally oblivious to the approaches by these other children. Mm-hmm. And so, if they're not paying attention to what the others are doing, they're not responsive to them then, you know, we've got to do more to get them interacting with us and and wanting to interact with us. I think this is one of the keys. And when you address this environmental issue of, you know, it's an inclusive environment, you know, sometimes some of the motivational variables do switch there. Some children really do just enjoy watching the other kids, going along with the other kids, and they'll respond well to them, in which case we wouldn't want to miss out on that opportunity. I think one of the problems we run into, though, Quite frankly, Terry, sometimes we get children into those environments, but yet the child hasn't developed a number of critical language skills, and so they're they're there and they maybe interact in a limited way, but they may not get enough instruction to really overcome those those language deficits, which they really need to work on. So, how do you go about capturing motivation and enhancing cooperation? I know when my son was younger. Um, very early on in uh, his program, I would try to use, uh, I'll just say, uh, be general here and say, a little chocolate candy with a colorful outside coating. And that would um, engender some cooperation for about 30 minutes, and then uh, we would be, you know, swinging off the chandeliers. Um, Yeah. So how do you capture motivation and enhance cooperation in a positive way? Yeah, okay. Well, that's, uh, I'm so glad you asked that because motivation is the key. If you don't have a child that wants to interact with you, if they don't like you, they don't like you know being with you, doing what you're doing, or seeing your reactions, you know, why should they do anything for you? You can make people do things. Say, so you're going to sit down and do this until I let you up, but then... What's going to happen after you're done with them? They're not going to want to come back to you because that was no fun. So one of the first lessons I learned about working with children is you have to, what we call in technical terms, establish yourself as a conditioned reinforcer. You want the child to like you so that they're going to approach you. Here we have children with language delays, social interaction delays, and if our teaching leads to them not wanting to be around us, then I think we're really working against the child. So the first thing we've got to do is make sure that the child sees that good things happen when they interact with us. 
so that they want to keep approaching us. I like to say we like the children to run to us, not from us. Mm-hmm. That's one of our first goals. So we need to be fun, and we need to allow the child access to activities that are better with us than without us. So that's how I generally approach working with kids. Start out, we've got to make friends with them. They've got to enjoy us. And then from there, we slowly start getting some demands placed on them or instructions and have them go along with us so we can teach them the skills they need to learn. So how do you assess? Can you please describe your assessment tools for our listeners? Yes. Um, an assessment tool that I developed is called the Assessment of Basic Language and Learning Skills, which I revised in 2006. It has 544 skills that are from 25 different skill repertoire areas. Some of those areas include cooperation and reinforcer effectiveness, motor imitation, vocal imitation, requesting skills, labeling skills, receptive language skills, uh, intraverbal skills, or that talking about things in their absence, if you will, social skills, motor skills, and so forth. And it's used in a way such that it stratifies from simpler types of responses to more difficult responses within those repertoires. One of the problems that parents and educators have is that when they look at a child with delays, they'll often see some of the obvious delays. The child can't express emotions. They can't express concepts like wet or dry. They can't talk about what they did when they came home from school. However, what they often don't see are a lot of underlying prerequisite skills, simpler skills that the child also doesn't have. For instance, today I was just with a child, and one of the objectives that somebody had selected for him was to work on the concept of wet and dry and also on emotions. And what was interesting was this child has an extremely limited vocabulary. Even naming simple objects around the house is a difficult task for the child. He can't do it. And so if you can't label and talk about simple things, which are very, very readily identifiable to everybody, how are we going to teach children to identify attributes of wet and dry or private events such as the emotions that they may be feeling? Those are, those are hard concepts. and we, we can't even necessarily always tell what they're feeling, if they're feeling pain or if they're feeling some type of emotion. How do we teach them that when we can't even get them to learn simpler things like this is a cup, this is my backpack, these are my shoes, and so forth? So a lot of times kids get frustrated because people are trying to teach them concepts that are way over their head. All right. We'll pick up with this when we come back. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and we'll be back really soon with Dr. James Partington. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the 
the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymedica.com. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health and Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. For the next segment of this program, after the next break, we'll be um, taking a question from a young lady who's called in. Right now, we need to pick up with a question uh, with Dr. Partington that we were discussing before the break. Uh, You were talking about assessment tools, Dr. Partington, and we were going to go into exploring what the first priority for teaching is. Okay, well, the first priority is, again, establishing that relationship with the child such that they want to do things for you. One of the issues with regards to autism has to do with the effectiveness of what we call social reinforcers, praise and so forth, our smiles. And a number of the children with that diagnosis really don't respond well initially to words of praise or our reactions that usually show our pleasure. And so we need to establish those as conditioned reinforcers, such when a child sees a smile, they know that other good things are coming. Now, what those other things are can be any number of things. It doesn't have to be some kind of a candy item or other edible. It can be just to be tickled or be allowed to, uh, you know, sing a song with them, such that you sing it with them and engage in, you know, hand actions along with the song. It can be a wide variety of items being allowed to do a favorite activity and so forth. Yeah, so I'm, that's what mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so sorry. I've just got to say that um, I, my son is on special, has been on special diet now for years, and I just want to let listeners know that so nobody's out there, you know, giving their kids something that they may have a reaction to. Yes, exactly, and that's why I say, you know, too many times people rely on you know edible types of reinforcers when they really don't have to. It could be that the child just likes to be allowed to go down a slide or to be picked up and swung around or tickled or just, you know, make silly noises with them that they enjoy. <laughs> it's whatever that works to 
the, the child will work for, basically. Yeah, and it's kind of counterproductive because if you give something as a reinforcer, that causes an allergic reaction or, you know, like that affects behavior or causes gastrointestinal pain. It's going to end up being counterproductive to yeah. to your teaching, which That's you right. alluded to earlier. So how do you address sensory needs? Well, sensory needs... Um, I generally approach each child, again, individually, and I see what it is they enjoy. So I don't necessarily um, talk about it when I'm talking to parents so much in terms of sensory needs, but rather I talk about how can we provide stimulation to this child in a way in which they enjoy it. Okay, so I'll look and I'll watch a child, for instance, and I'll see they seem to enjoy bouncing around. They like to hop on things. They like to, to you know, constantly be in motion, and they to enjoy putting themselves in different positions. And so if I see that, then I said, wow, okay, so they like this kind of change in their body. So maybe I can use that then as a reinforcer. If a child likes to jump and hop around, well, maybe I can have them do something and then they get to go jump uh, or climb around on something that they really enjoy, perhaps getting pushed on a swing, for instance. I get a lot of kids to do a large amount of uh, learning on a swing, you can actually push them as a reinforcer for naming things, talking about things, right. making certain sounds, and so on. Do you collaborate with uh, sensory integration therapists or occupational therapists as part of a child's team? Well, I have in the past, and I and I still do. I, I mainly uh, work with occupational therapists though, on some of the fine motor development. A lot of these children have some difficulty with being able to manipulate, you know, small items very well and easily, such as to get an item from the palm of their hand up to their fingertips so that they can, you know, put it like a peg in a pegboard, for instance. And so I, I work with occupational therapists in that capacity and perhaps on some of the skills such, such as related to fastening buttons or zippers and so forth. I found them to be extremely helpful to me in, in those areas. Very good. Now, that's the positive side of um, working with sensory needs. How, how do you know when a behavior or inattentiveness is due to a child being in pain or perhaps the fluorescent lights are bothering them or perhaps someone's perfume is bothering them or some other reason? Well, a lot of times you don't know because you just, you can't, you, you know, they can't tell you and you can't necessarily see it. However, one of the most critical things I think we have to keep in mind when we work with the child is we have to watch the child's behavior extremely carefully to see what are the best conditions under which we get them to learn. So, for instance, if I find that a child uh, is having some some difficulty um, because maybe it's just a little too loud of an environment, they kind of tell you that by, you know, putting their fingers in their ears. There's a number of children I work with that you can praise them and praise can generally be effective, but if you praise too loud, all of a sudden they don't like that. It becomes aversive. Mm -hmm. And so my, my guiding principle is always watch the child's behavior, see how they react, and then use those methods that you find to be most effective to get them to dial in and participate in the learning. Get them to set up that situation just as often as you can and try to avoid those situations which are more problematic. And that's a good testimonial for low student-staff ratios. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the mistakes we make in our 
in our society in general and educational circles is we tend to put children in an environment and then hope that they're going to do well. Mm. And, and we're losing a lot of time when we, if the child doesn't do well. If they do well, then that's fine. It's when they don't do well, we have problems. So I'd rather get a much more aggressive approach in terms of treatment and get them going, get them learning, making sure we get them developing the skills that they need to learn from their everyday interactions with others and do that right away. So I'm a big proponent of this intensive low-ratio intervention, whether it be one-to-one or one-to-two. It's whatever the child needs to be able to acquire skills rather than kind of hope that if we just kind of put them in a looser training environment that they're going to be successful. Right. Someone recently said to me um, that teachers often have the attitude, you are not learning the way I teach, when really it should be, you know, the child's um, behavior or success, in essence, saying, you're not teaching the way I can learn. That's right. And it's up to us. If the child's not learning, it's not the child's fault. I look at that as being, we haven't figured out how to do our job correctly. Mm -hmm. Well, there's good. a lot of people who engage in what I call teaching-like activities, but I don't count it as teaching until the child learns something. Very good. Okay. Now let's get into the mechanics. Please yeah. tell us about manding and how to select the first mands to teach. Oh, excellent. The mand or the request is one of the most powerful types of expressive language available for a child. The child is basically telling you what they want. They're asking for things that are important to them. And so why should a child speak to us? Why should they learn the names of items and other types of communication? The demand or the request gets them exactly what they want. Now, soon they're going to learn that they can't always get what they want, but that's a better problem because at least now you know why they're upset. It's because they've asked for something and they can't get it just like all the rest of us. But what we want to do is teach these children to ask for things that are important to them. So I like to pick the first request something very simple, something, tell us when they're hungry, for instance. Let us know when they need something to eat. Let us know if they would like something that's a powerful reinforcer, such as perhaps some music or singing, something with an auditory type of an input, or maybe something with a visual uh, stimulus. Maybe they like to watch DVDs. They enjoy being able to see, you know, their favorite characters on TV, so we can teach them to ask for those things. Or maybe they want something that has some tactile or vestibular type of input. Maybe they want to ask to go swing or jump on a trampoline, something like that. So what I do when I pick the first one is I always try to pick one that I can teach that will allow me the opportunity to get the child to practice the skill over and over and over again within a very short period of time. Frequently for children who are not communicating and who don't have control over their vocal musculature, I may teach them to use the sign for eat. Not that I'm trying to teach them sign language. I'm trying to teach them how to communicate right. while I develop the control over the vocal musculature. But if I've got a child and I've got something that they want to eat that's, of course, not harmful to their GI system, then what I would like to do is get them to I'd give them a prompt. Perhaps I'd show them what I want them to do. I might take their hand and guide them to put their hand up to their mouth and say they want something to eat. And then I give them a little something of that food item. And then... I don't give them a whole lot because I want them to practice some more. So I can fade out my prompts because I don't want this child to become dependent upon me doing the work for him. I want him to be able to tell me when he's hungry by tapping his mouth with his fingers that he wants something to eat, and then I can provide him with something. So I pick something that I can get him to repeat over and over again. So rather than let's say that um, 
they wanted to eat some organically grown raisins, okay? And so they really, really liked them. And so what I might do is I get them to do the sign for eat for me, and I might give them a raisin, and then I get them to practice it over and over again while I'm baiting my prompts so that they start doing it more on their own. And I might get 10 or 20 trials in where they're asking for something to eat. Now, they may not necessarily use that right away, but over the course of time we find that children will start to let us know when they're hungry they want something to eat. And in the meantime, we're working on their vocal musculature, teaching them how to make sounds and say words such that they might later transfer that and no longer need to tap their mouth to let us know they're hungry, but rather say, eat, I want to eat. Now, what happens if they have a favorite thing like raisin or piggyback and they decide that whenever they want something, that's the catch-all phrase that expresses that they want something and they're using piggyback when they want the raisin or piggyback when they want the water? That's a teaching error on our part. And see, this is where in the past many times people have made the mistake of teaching words like more and please to a child And they say, wow, the kid uses the sign right away, and now he's asking for things all the time. Unfortunately, more and please doesn't identify the motivational variable for what they want. Hmm. That's why when I pick things for a child to be able to ask for, I'll usually pick them with different motivational conditions, one where it might be hunger motivated, one where it might be visual stimulation, another maybe auditory stimulation, or tactile stimulation. Good strategy, and we'll come back with our caller and Dr. James Partington when we return. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health & Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. JackLalane.com presents Jack LaLane Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Each week, Jack is joined by Elaine LaLane and his nephew, bodybuilder, kinesiologist, and personal trainer, Chris LaLane, to answer your questions and help you overcome your fitness roadblocks. That's three times the diet and fitness know-how. Three times the entertainment. Tune in every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific to Jack LaLane Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. 
And one of our listeners, Leora, has called in with a question for Dr. James Partington. Leora? Hello? Hello? Hi, Leora. Hi, how are you doing today? You're on the air. What would you like to ask Dr. Partington? Doctor, my question is this. How do you help a child learn to be verbal when they have apraxia as well as ASD and SID? Thank you. Um, I would like to address that by saying, number one, I'm a real practical guy. Okay? And so when I hear words like apraxia, and I've heard this over and over again over the course of several decades here, one of the problems we run into is we're trying to explain why what we're seeing as a child's behavior or what we're not seeing as a child's behavior. And when I hear a word such as apraxia, I think in terms of here's a child that is not able to control their vocal musculature and be able to use communication expressively like other children are. And so what, there, there could be many different reasons for it, and, but what I want to do is I want to figure out how can I get the child engaging in the skills such that they'll be able to do it. So I kind of, I, I, I don't necessarily disregard it, but I kind of put it in the background. And I say, okay, I've got a child that can't make sounds or repeat sounds for me. I'm going to work directly on that while I'm working on teaching them other ways of being able to let their needs and wants be known, how to request things, as we were just talking about. Also, I can teach them to perhaps label using, again, I might use some sign language if I need to or other augmentative communication system. But basically, I'm going to be working around the functional aspects of the problem and saying, how can I get this child to communicate and how can I get control over their vocal musculature? Many times... Children who don't have control over their vocal musculature enough to, to repeat back words to us aren't even able to motorically imitate many of the simple movements that we make. In fact, if you look at the research, there's a number of research articles that have come out that have shown that you know kids who do well in effective uh, intensive intervention treatments often come to this to the intervention already starting to imitate a number of motoric skills and maybe even some vocalizations. However, one of the areas that a good intervention program should always stress is teaching these kids to be able to do what others are doing, to be able to imitate. Every developmental theorist talks about how important it is to be able to learn from the actions of others, but yet many of the interventions do not stress enough about how to actually teach these skills to children or they actually don't teach a wide enough variety and skill levels of motor imitation. And vocal imitation is that. It's, it's a matching of what somebody else is doing. In the one case, the motor skills, it's a visual stimulus. In the vocal imitation, or the echoic, it's an auditory stimulus. So we need to teach the child how to pay attention to us, match what we're doing, and we find that sometimes there's a pretty big carryover from the motor imitation to vocal imitation. It's not a direct carryover. It doesn't generalize entirely but the instructional control that we get over getting a child to match us really does carry over to the vocal limitation skills. So to answer your question, I do it in a very practical manner. I just did it head on. Leora, is that helpful? Is that what you meant? Um, yes, but I was hoping for a little bit more of a concrete um, help, <laughs> a little bit of an example of what I could do with my own child well, to... I'll tell you. Imitation, perhaps. Take a look at that. Take a look at the vocal imitation. I can't tell you because I've never seen your child, so I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what to do. Uh, but I, I would I would approach it from that perspective and I get the child going along with me. 
Okay, thank you so much. Oh, Leora, just hello? Yes. If I uh, could just add, um, my son had apraxia, and I got, um, and as as Dr. Partington said, you know, each child is is an individual, so I don't um, know how this will work with your child, but what I did with mine was to get um, these cards, like speech therapy cards for oral motor imitation, making different sounds and forming his lips in different ways, and I worked with him doing that and found that to be very helpful. And I'm not, I don't remember exactly where I ordered them from. Um, I'm not sure. It might have been someplace like um, Super Duper Publications, which this isn't an endorsement. It's just, I think, maybe where I ordered them from. And that was helpful for us. So maybe that will be helpful in your situation. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Leora. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Partington. Yes. Okay. You were talking before the break. Um, we were talking about how do you um, shape things so that the child doesn't use the word piggyback when he really wants raisins. Um, and right. I guess that gets into talking about tact, about correctly labeling things and being able to make those differentiations in your mind. Well, well there's some differences there. It, it could, but it, what you're asking about is basically how do you get them to ask for what they want when they really want it okay? mm-hmm. and not ask for something else. And so part of what we have to do is make sure that we're not teaching them the similar types of things. So, for instance, if I'm teaching um, a child to, um, uh, oh, how can I say it, like ask for things to eat or things to drink, they might easily confuse those because, you know, let's say they're doing it through some sign language because they don't have control of vocal musculature like the, like Leonard just said. Uh, we might end up with a child that keeps putting their hand to their mouth trying to do like a sign for drink or a sign for eat, and they might mix it up and get it confused and People might not know what they want, and so they kind of give them something, and then the child might reject it, and then say, oh, it has to be the other one then. They didn't want something to eat. They want something to drink. What I like to do is set up teaching situations where if I'm not sure, I can teach that discrimination. I can put all the things they like to eat over in one area of the room, and I put all the things that they would like to drink in the other area of the room, and then when the child walks over towards something to drink, I can immediately start prompting them to give me the correct sign or say drink when they go over there, because I know that's what they want because their feet are leading them over there. Very so, good. Is yeah. that kind of arranging the environment? Absolutely. Absolutely. We have to become masters at arranging our environment to capture the motivation of these children and set up conditions such that they have an opportunity to learn and use their skills throughout their life. I know that verbal behavior is very keen on errorless teaching. Yes. Well, we don't have to learn by making mistakes. We can learn by being carefully prompted what the response is that we need to do to get access to a reinforcer. So rather than, you know, uh, trying to teach somebody to be able to label something when they don't know it, we, we wouldn't ask them what it is. We'd have to tell them what it is first. Mm-hmm. So we tell them it's a shoe, and then we say, what is it? shoe? Good, that's right, it's a shoe. Because we wouldn't ask a child if they didn't know what it was. What is it? <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense. They don't know the answer. So we start out by fully prompting. We say shoe. And they say, good, that's right. What is it, shoe? Good. And we might have them do something else that they're already capable of doing. Maybe give us a high five or, you know, clap their hands or something like that or label something else they know and then come back to us again and say, oh, what is it? It's a shoe. And we might start giving them a partial prompt to get them in the right direction. They say, shoe, good job, that's right. So by skillfully arranging our prompts and fading them out, Children don't have to make mistakes to learn. We can teach without learning under many conditions, most conditions, I think. Right. That's um, exactly what I was doing. Um, 
I was going to ask you about avoiding prompt dependency, and also I used um, intraverbals, and I found singing to be really good for that as well. Absolutely. Well, prompt dependency is not the child's problem. It's our problem. <laughs> we, we often create it because we use prompts. We don't get rid of them quickly enough. And so a lot of times people use the same level of prompt for far too long across too many individuals, too many days, and then pretty soon the child kind of expects that you're going to require that level of prompt. They're waiting for you to respond before they respond. So whenever I use a prompt, I'm always thinking, what's the least level of prompt I need to use at this moment, and how can I get rid of it as fast as I can? Because I don't want this child depending upon the prompt. I want them to be able to tell me what items are, that I'm asking for without any kind of prompts or all the other skills that I may be teaching. Same. And what was the second one you said? Well, I was asking about intraverbals, but I just want to make sure that we don't run out of time um, to let people know about something else because we're not going to have time to finish everything I'd like to talk to you about. Um, so I want to make sure people know about a resource where they can uh, get more information. Well, they can go to my website. That would be a good place to start which is behavioranalysts, that's plural, dot com, A-N-A-L-Y-S-T-S dot com. And on there you'll find information regarding the ABLES are, the assessment and uh, curriculum guide, if you will, the tracking system for the children, as well as the web ABLES, which is an online version of it. There's also the Teaching Language to Children with Autism book, as well as Capturing Motivation of Children with Autism, another book which I just recently published, and then the instructional videos and some quick tips for teaching and so forth. There's a lot of resources right there. Also, if people are interested in trying to find a, a qualified behavior analyst in their area, they can also go to the Behavior Analyst Certification Board website and put in their zip code and find a local person who might have had some training which may be appropriate to help their children. Okay, so that was www.behavioranalysts.com. And Correct. we'll look forward to reading your new book, uh, Capturing Motivation of Children with Autism, was it? Yes, that's Cap. correct, Terry. And thank you very much for having me on here. Nobody has all the answers, including me, but our science and technology will help us learn more about how to help these children. Right. Well, thank you for continuing to work on this and sharing this important practical information with our listeners. Thanks to our sponsor, Enzymedica. To our listeners, next week my guest is Sarah Clifford Shefflin, a practicing speech-language pathologist who specializes in providing therapy to children, including children with autism spectrum disorder and other pervasive developmental disorders. For questions about the program, please email me at taranga at autism1.org. Thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Enzymedica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.